The Mac Daddy, Marty McCary, back on the show, man. Good to see you, Z. Oh, it's a joy. What's your shirt about, man? Oh, uh, this was a conference put on by Accolade. They do a lot of patient navigation. So um, I just generally like that concept of evolve. Yeah. And patient navigation. Because, you know, as I'll say, my, you know, my parents are older and they go through medical stuff and they're both doctors and it's still like impossible to navigate our healthcare system. Evolve is just a great concept. Evolve, learn, love, just great principles. I take the Doc Vader approach, which is evolve more hate, more anger, more negative, negative emotions. Devolve. And you came down, you're visiting up in the Bay Area now because you were up in Napa doing a talk, yeah? Yeah, uh, Yeah. Physician Hospital Association had a conference and they invited me to speak. And it's pretty cool. It's physician-owned hospitals, which is very controversial out there in the business world. You know, there's this idea that, oh, doctors shouldn't be running anything. And so they actually lobbied in the Affordable Care Act a provision that bans any new physician-owned hospitals or expansion of existing physician-owned hospitals. And isn't that because it's like the the fox guarding the hen house, like the doctors then should just own the MRI machine and order a bunch of tests and make a bunch of money even if it's unnecessary? So that happens in the clinic space and the surgery center space, but it doesn't. it's not allowed in the hospital space uh-huh. with physician ownership. So it's going on. It's just not going on in the hospital space. But yeah, that was the idea is that, you know, this could be a conflict of interest. And somehow if you have private equity running the hospital, <laughs> that's better. And there's no conflict. Right. Then it's a purely altruistic hospital. That's right. Then you have Darth Vader guarding the hen house. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. You know, so, so you did this thing. And what I love about it is you came down and the first thing you said is, hey, Z, do you drink wine? Mm. And I said, I don't know, does the Pope like lead a major Catholic Entity in the world? Yes, of course. And you brought two, look at this, guys. Enjoy. Motion vineyards. Uh, this almost sounds like a Jewish vineyard. <laughs> it sounds like a <laughs> Jewish Persian guy who started a but, but speaking of which, don't I look like a Persian nightclub owner in the shirt? You look like a motion. My friend, guy. come. <laughs> I, I'll give you motion. Th- this, um, so this is a 2016 Pinot Noir. Now, Russian River Valley, which is a beautiful area and beautifully known for Pinot. You need a slightly cooler climate. It's a different type of grape. It's very delicate. It's very finicky. It's what the um, a Burgundy region of France is known for. Now, why mm. am I saying all this? Number one, to show you I'm incredibly pretentious. Wow. Um, two, I'm snooty. Three, I used to think that drinking wine was good for you. Uh, in moderation. And I'm really reevaluating that now. <laughs> <laughs> you have trouble sleeping. You have trouble sleeping. I, I'll occasionally get epigastric pain if I drink wine. So I've actually stopped drinking a lot of wine. And there is questioning of the whole French paradox and the whole idea that like wine is healthy and that there are so many confounders. And this is when we talk about data and studies and COVID and everything. Yeah. There's so many things that go along with people who drink moderately that might improve their health. Yeah. That... It's not the alcohol. And in fact, when you kind of look at the data and strip away those effects, the alcohol itself is never that good for you. In fact, any alcohol seems to have a negative effect. Well, it's always amusing when somebody is eating Wendy's triple baconators all day (laughs) and then insists they have to have a glass of wine because it's good for heart health. (laughs) And look, any small benefit to heart health is far outweighed by the detriment to liver health. (laughs) Right. But we never talk about that. And cancer. And cancer. Yeah. yeah, I mean, even a little alcohol. Now, that doesn't mean you can't moderately drink and be, be have it be a part of a very wonderful lifestyle. One, one suspicion I had, and you can tell me you think this is crazy, maybe part of the beneficial effect they see in wine is a 
of moderate drinking is just taking that little bit of edge of the type A stress off mm. and dropping cortisol levels and you know that sort of thing. Yeah. I wonder if that's a component. I don't relate. I don't have any stress. Of yeah, any you're kind. you're zero stress kind of guy. There's like, something about there's something liberating about just doing whatever you want and saying whatever you want. 24-7. And that's the Marty McCary autobiography. That's the Z-Dog story. I did what I wanted, whenever I wanted, <laughs> dot com. That's, that's, that's the, the obituary. Yeah, that's, the obituary. That's how I want to be known. Oh, yeah. And PBMs probably took my life. That'll be the <laughs> What's but, the other bottle? Between, oh, so the other bottle. I'm curious. Uh, is a Behringer, Founders Estate. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. Now, Behringer is a large producer out there and they have a varied quality. So some of their stuff is very high end and good. And some of it's like the stuff you'd get, you know, in the more Trader Joe space. But um, this one, I, I haven't looked up, but it looks beautiful and I can't wait to drink it. Wake up with searing epigastric pain, possibly projectile vomiting and a sleep disturbance. Vomiting. It's good for my business then that you're... I believe that you're a pancreatic surgeon. Uh, yeah, pancreatitis is uh, part of the business. And I can make that acute pancreatitis chronic by continuing to drink nonstop. Isn't Sauvignon, isn't that the brand? It's funny, I'm asking you about the wine that, I, <laughs> that you I'm, gave me. Well, I'm giving, I'm giving you these two bottles as a gift, as an expression of love. And but that. one factor is also that the TSA agents will not allow me to carry it in the carry-on. But I would just want you to know that I do appreciate you. Listen, this is not much more than three ounces of liquor. <laughs> See, but Marty, the difference is if you really cared about wine, you would transport it the way a proper drug mule would transport it, which is per rectum. <laughs> and honestly, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking- mm, Motion. It's a pretty- <laughs> Motion. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a pretty easy fit. So do you know about this big taste test that put Napa on the map? It yes. was like in 1976. I don't know much about it, but. Yes. So the idea was they did a taste, a blind, sort of blind tasting contest between Napa, California wines, which were considered garbage upstart by the French. Yeah. And trash. the French trash. And then the French wines. And mm. the California wines won and really put the whole Napa Valley on the map. Mm. Now, the French are still pissed and still have a point, which is <laughs> the California wines tend to be much more forward in their fruit flavors and a little overwhelming and they, they don't pair as well with food maybe as the more subtle, refined French wines that express the terroir or the character of the vineyard in which they were grown. But, but this is very controversial. I have no idea. I just drink the wine and wake up with projectile vomiting. <laughs> So <laughs> I'm impressed. You got a, a sort of classy side to you here where you know about these wines. You know, um, this is like inside the doctor studio with Marty McCary and ZDog MD. <laughs> and we talk about all the cultured things. No, I was actually really into wine and I got into wine in residency. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I think part of the reason stress was management. stress management. <laughs> exactly. And we, you know, I, what it was, was I think, oh, you want to hear this? This is a great story of total conflict of interest, inappropriate influence, all the things. <clears throat> so Pfizer, at the time, there weren't all these like rules about like they couldn't buy the residents lunch and they couldn't do that. So Pfizer took a bunch of residents up to Napa on a trip and we listened to talks and this and that, but most of the talks were like, here's why Norvask is so much more effective at hypertension <laughs> control. And, uh, and so it, they took us wine tasting. Now I had never drank wine. I was not a big drinker. I would drink beer or garbage, whatever, you know, Ernest and Julio Gallo's jug of Carlos Rossi. And um, as I was doing this, I was like, hey, this is a thing. There's science involved, there's snootery. 
you can lord it over people. Um, <laughs> it's close to where I live. Like mm -hmm. maybe I should get into this. And I just decided to turn my uh, formidable intellect, formidable, uh, away from medicine <laughs> and towards wine. And that's how I started getting into it. So it was Pfizer. Basically I was a drug mule uh, for Pfizer uh, learning about wine. <laughs> <laughs> I've been um, talking to a lot of OBs and neonatologists lately for a project I'm doing. And uh, some of them on the in, in Texas were saying that the drug reps used to take them across the border into Mexico to bullfights. <laughs> <laughs> You're like kidding. No, I don't, I don't, I totally believe it. Oh, um, and the formula companies were like the most notorious for like doing whatever it took to get you to learn about the baby formula. Oh, right. Of course, because yeah. they wouldn't want you to breastfeed because that would be natural and healthy. Yeah. They want the, oh. Meanwhile, in the Northeast, they took us to a bowling alley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, as as our mutual friend Vinay Prasad would really have a fit over this. I mean, his whole thing is how these influences actually do make a big difference. They do matter. Um, and uh, you know, Rita Redberg, I'm sure, would also have something to yeah. say about this. They're yeah. big about conflicts of interest. And yeah, and it's appropriate because it was a conflict. Uh, I like conflicts of interest. I actually want some. If you, if you know of any out there. <laughs> Give me some. I, I'd like conflicts. You know what? Uh, Marty and I have always struggled <laughs> to find conflicts out there. Like there's nobody who dislikes us or wants us to stop talking. It's not necessarily conflicts of interest that I think is cool. It's more just conflict. Conflict in general. Conflict in general. Well, you know, in that, so I've noticed Marty over the course of the pandemic and you were always in good shape, but you've started getting like seriously jacked, like ripped. And I'm thinking part of <laughs> I this- I don't know about that. It might be because you hang out occasionally with our mutual friend, Dr. Peter Atiyah. Oh man. Who basically just, when the minute you see him, you're like, is this guy carved out of marble? <laughs> he's like, the most disciplined person I've ever met in my life. It's kind of sick <laughs> what he's able to do. The first time I, I, I went uh, I went and saw him uh, in San Diego, I was just like, dude, he, I was like, is that just a natural V shape that he has? Yeah. Like those are his lats. It's unbelievable. It's nuts. Yeah. And- uh, so I think though it might be because you're thinking of getting into cage fighting or possibly some other maleficence. Look, I'm just trying to, to maintain, I, at the gym, my nickname is Atrophy. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm getting a gut, you know, as I'm getting some years. And when I was at the beach in Florida and I kept rotating and my sister was like, why do you keep turning? I said, I got to tan on all four sides now. <laughs> Dude, so I'm I'm not bigger or stronger than I was pre-pandemic. I love uh, I love that your nickname is Atrophy because <laughs> that's, that's what they call me. It really is, you know, and, and, and that they are like all the other thugs at the gym that are just that are totally yoked, and they're like, oh, here comes Atrophy. Hey, Atrophy. So how much lower are you gonna put the plates today, huh? And then somebody, a nice woman, was there. She was like, Oh, why do they call you Atrophy? I said, No, no, it's hypertrophy. It's <laughs> for the woman, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's a, it's very anabolic. It's purely anabolic. They call me beer potomania. That was my, uh, do you remember that condition? You learn about it in med school. It, it's, it's a hyponatremia because uh, a person is so uh, alcoholic, typically homeless, not have access to real food and just drinking beer as their uh, sole source of calories. <laughs> and it has a very low sodium content and a high free water content. So they're holding on the water and spitting out sodium and they end up with hyponatremia. It just makes me smile when you hear a word that you haven't heard since medical school yes. and you just realize like, why did I even 
memorize that. Why did I do that? Yeah. Like beer potomania is a perfect name for like a metal band. It's a perfect name for, you know, uh, a ska band. Like that's all great. It's a perfectly useless piece of information to have to learn <laughs> and, and probably have to spit it out on a, on a board exam. I think I remember in the multiple choice beer potomania was one of the options for a hyponatremia. But I mean, it gets to medical education. Like what are we teaching people in the first place? I just took a board exam. I went on Peter Atiyah's podcast. <laughs> Dude, going with you. Okay, okay, I listen, went on listen, with listen. you. You and I did two shows with Peter. Were they not the most stressful things you've <laughs> I, ever done? I felt like I was studying for the USMLE or something. You know, and, and <laughs> part of it is before the show, he's like, "Guys, you're on an email thread with him," and and he's like, "Okay, here are the 47 different things that I want to make sure that we go deep on," and each one would take you like a decade to even just. <laughs> Scrape, scrape the surface. And he's like, but we're going to do all of it in a show. And so you get in there, your cortisol's already high. Like, and I never get, like, I don't get nervous about speaking yeah, anymore. And yet I'm like, the minute that uh, he calls, I'm like, yeah. And, and then Marty and I are texting each other during the thing. We're like, dude, how stressful is this, man? It is, it's just terrifying. <laughs> there was one study I remember. He was, he wanted to like ask you the, the hard numbers. Oh, right. and, and you were like, well, I'll give you a top line and Marty may be interested in going a little deeper. And luckily I had read it. You'd read it. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I would kind of, I would shift it over to Marty. I go, well, now of the two of us, Marty is actually still a professor at a major institution. <laughs> I don't know what that means nowadays. Yeah, I know that's a thing, right? The but, line of academics and private world is completely gray now. Yeah, it's completely gray. And when, what, so... What are, you're you're doing a lot of work now on uh, different things because as we're you you called it you tweeted it recently the COVID myopia mm. this idea that now we've been through okay a million deaths and it's been a total cluster f right we've been talking about it for two years you and I and others and everybody and but yet we're still so focused down on COVID that we're missing things like maternal mortality and uh, all the other issues that are actually causing tremendous harm, like mm. education disparities, equity issues, all these other mm. things. They've gone by the wayside because we're wondering, can we get more emergency funding for COVID? Or can we talk more about this in the news? You know, Ukraine distracted them a little bit, but it, it's still an issue. I mean, do you see you know, where we are now with COVID, with Omicron, with the levels of generalized immunity, with uh, vaccination availability? I mean, where, where are we now? Well, there's um, understandably a lot of COVID myopia because we've been burned badly and people have the image of all of the carnage of COVID when it had a higher infection fatality rate. That infection fatality rate now is about 20 times lower mm. in people with immunity, right? which is 95% of adults over age 12. And that data comes from the CDC from a few months ago, and it's still running around, so it's probably even higher, maybe 97 or 98% of Between people. vaccine and natural immunity. That's right. Yeah. They just look for the antibodies. So when you have that much population immunity, you've, you've got a virus that's behaving differently and probably should have a different name so it doesn't conjure up all the mm. thoughts we had of the virus that had a much higher infection fatality rate over the last two years. Mm. And so- I was talking to a group, I won't name them, but they, they, they're an amazing charity and they deal with kids with a particular disability and they've got this incredible network of summer camps oh. for these kids. And the kids just absolutely love these summer camps. And these summer camps have been shut down basically 
during COVID. Now, the type of um, um, chronic condition that these kids have does not put them at in, an increased risk. It's not mm. one of those conditions. Right, right. So um, then the camps reopened, but they didn't reopen the bus service. Oh. So basically only the parents who could afford to drive, right? And th- this is the kind of thing it's with COVID where it's such myopia, yeah, right? And, and, and we're seeing that. So here in the Bay Area, there's this massive surge of Omicron, BA, whatever we're up to now. Yeah. And it it's not filling hospitals. It's not filling ICUs. There's some uptick in hospitalization, which you would expect just because there's some people that are still unvaccinated or old or <coughs> unlucky. But in general, and CD, CDC, I think just released this data, like looking at deaths in vaccinated or immune people versus unvaccinated, it's pretty clear that if you have no pre-existing immunity, even Omicron can still be quite dangerous for you. But at this point in the game, most people have the pre-existing immunity. And more importantly, almost everybody has the option to have some immunity, whether they get vaccinated or, or whatever it is, right? So it's actually vaccination for the voluntary. You don't wanna go have a COVID party. And so we're at a point now where this is, it's a different came to some degree, mm-hmm, unless mm-hmm. something changes, which mm-hmm. is always possible. Yeah. Um, so the myopia though, like you're saying, is now we're still like there are proms where they're either canceled or people have to wear masks at a prom or things like that. And it gets to, again, our kids are already have this sense of fragility. They have, a sense, they have the mo- more anxiety, depression, suicide attempts than in history. And we're continuing to fragilize them. So, and the suicide thing is interesting because rates have been going up over time for two decades, but the CDC won't disclose the suicide numbers for 2021 to present, January 21st, 2021 to present. That's a year and a half of data. Where is it? Mm. Why not? Why aren't we? And so the CDC is sort of selectively not releasing certain data. They've never released the hospitalization data for boosted Americans under 50. In other words, does the booster change the rate of hospitalization for people under 50, the third dose, they've, they will not release it. But they, we, they, we, they have it because they're releasing it for people 50 to 65 and 65 and over. And so um, people are frustrated. You know, my concern is all of these heated arguments are going to cycle back in the winter. Yeah. And the reason is because the CDC is still not collecting the most important metric of the entire pandemic, which is hospitalizations for COVID, mm-hmm. right? Because not with COVID. Not with COVID. Yeah. Those are PCR testing everyone who walks in the door. Yeah. If you're doing that, if you have something that's endemic and going around, even though it may not be driving the hospitalization, it may still be, um, you know, it still may be just uh, skewing and inflating the numbers. Right, and and that's going to change policy decisions, which is what is why it's important to have good data. Because if your policy decisions are changed based on the idea that oh, our hospitals are full of from COVID, uh, whereas we don't know that. Right? Yeah. So yeah. these people who are saying, "Hey, you know, this is still a major crisis. Look at the hospitalization numbers." It's actually very logical thinking, but it just falls apart with the assumption that all of those hospitalizations are, are from for, COVID. from COVID. Yeah. yeah. So I'm concerned that we still don't have this important metric coming out of an agency with 21,000 employees. Well, I I don't know. uh, I did a recent episode with uh, Vinay talking about, I got a call from CDC's survey group, which by the way, many people were telling me that was a scam. Like that couldn't have been CDC, but I'm like, no, actually I was, 
first of all, it was Georgia, said CDC, immuno. Then I asked her some questions, but, and she wasn't trying to get very direct personal information, but trying to do the survey. And the way that she was doing the survey was so confusing and disjointed that I, as a reasonably educated individual, had trouble and ultimately had to abort. Um, because it was gonna take so long, which wasn't disclosed up front and so on and so forth. And I'm like, well, so even their data gathering apparatus, I worry is a little bit flawed. So we have to get better at that. Yeah. yeah? And if there are controversies in COVID, do the study quickly and answer the controversies. Surface transmission, pour gallons of alcohol in your groceries and mail. That was going on for months. I mean, that was the recommendation from February. I. I pour this alcohol the motion. on all my food <laughs> so, um, to sterilize it. You know, um, do the study in a laboratory. How many BSL-3 labs? I mean, we've got all these massive research facilities in the United States, right? And do the study in 24 hours that tells us it's airborne and not surface. By the way, that should have been the starting hypothesis. It is for the other two coronaviruses that cause severe illness mm. in humans, MERS and SARS. Mm. But why are we debating this for months? Same thing with masks, same thing with uh, school closures, with airplanes, with natural immunity. I mean, the list, that is the flaw. It's not that um, they made a wrong hypothesis. We all do that. It's letting it linger and sit in the public debate, really leaving doctors without evidence to answer the questions that they're getting from their patients. And I think that was the ultimate disservice. You know, our study found that the NIH took five months to fund COVID clinical research once they issued a grant. That's how long it take to, oh, wow. took them to give yeah. the money. So to me, you know, I, I know we kind of get tired of talking about COVID, but looking back, and there's a group now that wants to do a sort of a 9-11 commission style report. Yeah, I've heard about these guys. Yeah. And uh, they invited me to be a part of it. So I'm going to think about joining them. But that is my my feeling about the retrospect of this. Yeah, you know, and the other thing about retrospect, we have a few things here that we've, between you and I, kind of found recently. And one is this Harvard Gazette article, um, remote learning likely widened racial and economic achievement gap. Mm. And this is these are the unintended consequences of policy that are based on science that isn't quite there, that or is that not being looked at correctly in the ways that you're talking about? So if we say, well, okay, it didn't really matter. A million people still died. It was a disaster. We should have done more. We should have closed more schools. We should have done this one. No, 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 no. What we should have done is science the crap out of it correctly and then made decisions that make sense because when you make the wrong decisions, theoretically, if this is correct, you end up with this. And what, what did this say? Exactly? Oh, there's a great there's a line. Great quote in here. Let's read it. Yeah, this is from uh, Harvard Gazette. Harvard Gazette. So we know it must mean something, <laughs> these coastal elites. Um, interestingly, gaps, I'm going to read it like that. Yeah. Interestingly, no, I won't. Uh, gaps in math achievement by race and school poverty. So these gaps that were happening um, um, that seemed to correlate to race and how poor a school was did not widen in school districts, in states such as Texas and Florida and elsewhere that remained largely in person. So the point here is there were these gaps. So the more poor your school is, if there were racial differences, they had bigger gaps in achievement when they went remote, surprise, surprise, yeah. than uh, at more affluent or white populations. But that did, was not seen in states that didn't go remote. Yeah. <laughs> so that's interesting, right? Yeah, and I think more and more is gonna come out on this. Yeah, I mean, you gotta do a post-mortem on the whole thing. We have to, right? This is the biggest intervention in public health history. How can we not study it? 
Right. Now I'll say this though, we have to be careful because it's so politicized. Like when you talk Texas and Florida, then yeah. it becomes a conservative liberal thing. And everybody's like, well, you see those conservatives who didn't shut down. And then the, the, the liberals will say, well, but they had higher per capita death rates from COVID in conservative areas that voted for Trump. And so there's back and forth. How about we just look at, let's just get the data and see what we can figure out. Yeah. And the, you know, I, there's a lot of this out there, right? And I've gotten it. I you think you've gotten it in all of us. Are you with them? Or are you with yeah, us? Yeah, right? that's right. Hey, yeah. are you, which team are you yeah, on? And it's yeah. like, hey, I don't sign up for a program. I'm giving you what I truly <laughs> yeah. believe is scientifically objective. Yeah. And, um, you know, you're going to alienate some people that way. I'm an equal opportunity hater. <laughs> I, I, old, I mean, I will, I will alienate a lot of people. I, I will say this, like on reflection, the pandemic has pushed me more to the political center than I had maybe been even prior because well, I'm so disgusted with both. Like that Elon uh, spectrum that he shows shifting of this. So here's, here's the thing. When people say, oh, you know, Florida did better than New York, it's not appropriately adjusting for the time difference. And in during that time lapse, in, treatments improved, right? right? We learned not to aggressively intubate, to anticoagulate. So you cannot compare New York, which is intrinsically different, right? right. I mean, people are crammed into tight eleva- elevators. They live in sardine cans. Right. Uh, ventilation's not good in some of those old buildings. So to say that, oh, you know, we did better, you're not appropriately adjusting for age. You're right. not adjusting for the improvements in medical treatments. Right. But one comparison that I found to be very accurate and very honest is Michigan to Sweden. Ah, yes, I saw some of this, yeah. So Michigan has had (laughs) concurrent waves with Sweden. So they've happened at the same time, probably because of the climate. So all four major waves happened basically synchronously to different magnitudes Mm. in both places. Mm. They're the identical population, about 10.2 million people in each. Same age distribution, the average age is 41 in both. Mm. And the same distribution of people over 65. Mm. If anything, Sweden say hair older and a hair more uh, percent of people over 65, 20% versus 18% over 65. Right. In the final analysis, right, Sweden basically was just pretty much wide open. They limited gatherings to people under 50 and they required social distancing in restaurants. Beyond that, it was pretty much open, free and clear. Right, and they made mistakes. They'll acknowledge even with the nursing homes. Nursing homes, yeah. But in the final analysis, Michigan had some of the most restrictive policies in the United States, closing parks and so forth. In the final, final analysis, total deaths from COVID in Sweden were seventeen, almost eighteen thousand, and total deaths in Michigan about thirty-five thousand, double. We've got to ask why. Yeah, and I, I would wonder because, you know, as Vinay would always point out, it's hard to compare these disparate geographies, even if some things match. I wonder about the racial makeup, mm. uh, you know, Detroit versus Stockholm, very different, I would yeah. imagine. But even that, uh, it does tell you like, at, at, at the least you could say Sweden wasn't disastrously worse. That's right, right? that's right. Yeah, and they, and they took a much more liberal. Now, again, they did have, like you said, they had some precautions. They weren't, and, and people take their own precautions. Now in Sweden, there's much more, I think, uh, single, um, single person households. So maybe there's less in household transmission. Yeah, so the housing density is about 20% higher in Michigan. I've I'm, I'm been looking at this for a piece ah. I've been working on for a while. And the obesity rate's different, which if you're not familiar with obesity, it's when people 
or large. I understand it's when you have to tan on four sides. <laughs> <laughs> tan on all four sides. When, so. when your wrap handle is MC atrophy, except for hypertrophy of adipose tissue. Some people are, are built for comfort, not for speed. <laughs> so the obesity rate in Michigan is 36%. In Sweden, it's 20%. That accounts for some of the difference, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. not all of it, right? Mm-hmm. So I wish the New York Times would have sent a reporter to any one of the schools that were open free and clear for almost the entire pandemic in Europe and, you know, done some reporting on that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, but what, you know, I would love to see how these measures of mental health in kids have changed during pandemic. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're already talking about it. They're more anxious, more depressed. There are suicidal, suicide attempts. We don't know about completions as much. But and I've done a piece on this, but I'll say, you know, there was another piece we did here. See, so and and on that myopia, you know, that's the, the intense COVID myopia. Yeah, yeah. If you applied that to other things in society that you know allow people, you know, to, to sort of evaluate whether or not you can engage in some activity, you would have to close all swimming pools in America. Oh God, you would have to. And I'd be okay with that because <laughs> number one, less drownings. Number two, less poo in the pool that causes. <laughs> Well, look, we should do everything we can to promote safety. But the idea that you deprive people yeah. from, you know- Of joy. Doing this. Exercise. Yeah, and learning. And, yeah, I mean, that is part of health, right? It's part of mental health and activity and physical activity and finding happiness and alternatives to other bad things. So, I mean, that is where I think the COVID myopia has hurt us is to say, we have to do everything at all costs to avoid one viral transmission and anyway, it, this is a long dis- discussion that we've had, and it's not to say we need to be careless. It's just saying we've got a way that we've got to balance the advantage, po- positives and minus. And if you look at Sweden versus Michigan, those are the numbers. Yeah. We as scientists cannot just blow that off, especially since cases will bump up next winter, and we're going to have this debate again. And you're going to have schools close next year or the following year. And you know what? Maybe circumstances will change. Maybe we have a super lethal Darth Vader strain. It's possible. You can't yeah. rule it out, right? And that changes the calculus. But the idea that we did all this stuff, now we cannot evaluate it or study it or make conclusions about it. And if you do, that's political. Yeah. That's not the healthy process. Not healthy at all. Right? The, the politicization of the whole thing uh, that we've witnessed over the course of the thing has just made it so unpalatable because the, the marriage of science and sensibility, <laughs> you know, that that is a baseline desire of most people, I think, but it's really gotten insane yeah. on both sides now. Now they're both kind of unsensible. It's like either, you know, you're full, hey, sorry to interrupt this episode, it's Dr. Z. Just a quick pitch here. If you can just leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, it helps us a lot. I also wanna hear what you think about this episode when you're done listening. Hello at zdogmd.com. It's the best way for me to hear your voice because the emails come right to me and we don't have a comment section on most podcast platforms. Maybe Spotify has one, but nobody else does. So it really gets your voice involved on episodes, especially that don't have a video. And the third thing is, if you want to be a part of this community and support the show, join our supporter tribe, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. You can join on YouTube, Locals, Facebook, Instagram. You get live videos with me where we're talking about these things in depth, uncensored, and your comments are fully incorporated as in real time. And then we do these Zoom meetings where it's really like a beautiful community where we share our experiences on the awakening journey list journey. 
how are we going to transform ourselves so we can transform healthcare and education and government? Because those systems are epiphenomena of us. Until we wake up, those systems will stay asleep. They'll, they're just an expression of our own delusion. So being a part of that, it supports this message so others can hear it. And it also allows for our own collective growth. So we need each other in that way. It's really, really, really tightly interwoven and interdependent. That's it. Back to your regular schedule, regularly scheduled show. Florida, like open everything, like put grandma on the beach with, you know, yeah. some, you know, I like that idea uh, with spring break uh, kids. <laughs> oh, I mean, with spring break <laughs> right. kids. Uh... So the, the full like uh, open, like this thing's a hoax thing versus the Bay Area where we are now, where I still see people with N95 respirators in a outdoor park with nobody near them. Uh, and, and this is just, and they look, they look, I was walking on my trail again. I usually go back to my trail around my house as a good indicator of where the insanity is. So in the very beginning of the pandemic, people hadn't lost their minds in terms of the politicization yet. So people, when the lockdown started, what did they do? They all went outside. Nobody was wearing masks outside and they would walk on the trail and they would say hi. And it was like our chance to see other humans and get out in nature. Very rapidly, you see full face masks, Darth Vader helmets on a trail. I'm not seeing a piece of data that says that's going to do much of anything. And then it opened up again. So now I see much less of that, but I still see people who are young wearing N95 respirators while hiking and they'll put them on as soon as they see you coming. And it's kind of like, okay, what have we done here? Like this is a whole click in yeah. people's minds that humans are not safe to see other humans. Yeah, we've allowed them to believe that Three vaccines and sometimes natural immunity on top of that is not sufficiently effective. That's that right. is the message and, that they believe. And it's may, maybe not their fault. It's maybe that that message is being conveyed out there. Paul, Paul Offit has said that, you know, I think his, the messaging on boosters and stuff like that mm -hmm. has been very counterproductive. It's basically saying, look, these vaccines should work to eliminate all infection. Anything else is a breakthrough. Yeah. And so keep vaccinating. It's almost like anchor pricing. Like, yeah. you know what? Four vaccinations is what we're recommending now. So people are like, well, four is a lot. But the three now doesn't feel that bad, even though I'm 18 and otherwise completely healthy. You know, it's kind of like they're shifting the thing. So this, this communication has really been a problem, I think. Um, I think people are starting to realize, okay, you know what? We have to just get on with life. My, my favorite study of the whole pandemic was the study done by the Stanford student who found that 46% of bikers in Palo Alto were wearing a mask, but only 17% were wearing a helmet. I've seen it. That's amazing. I've seen it here. This is a guy who, he got the idea for the study. I talked to him. I reached out to him. He's nice. an amazing guy. And he basically said, I got the idea for a study because I saw a Stanford student biking dangerously through a construction zone against traffic with <laughs> flip-flops on and AirPods. <laughs> With no helmet, but they were wearing a mask. <laughs> but they were masked. And, and, you know, it was an N95. So, you know, he at least the construction dust was not entering his lungs. No, you see it. It's this very, it's a dissonant kind of behavior. But again, it, it, it's entirely predictable based on how we've conditioned people's minds. It is a group think thing too. And it's different in different parts of the country. Like no one in rural Alabama is going to see that happening. And it's... and. In a way, it's actually, there's an appropriate geographic uh, interaction with the social interaction, with the media interaction. That, that's actually, some of that's appropriate. In New York and San Francisco, where it's dense, a little bit of paranoia about a new pandemic is probably a good thing. It's an adaption, right? Mm -hmm. But in rural central California, which by the way, so, you know, I visited my parents recently down there and uh, I, I, I had 
reason to visit one of the care facilities there. And I asked the infection preventionist at the care facility for elders. I said, so what's the what's it like in this town? And they told me, yeah, the thing here is even when family is visiting a nursing home or care facility, they typically are unvaccinated. And so we have to test them every time, put them in an N95 fitted respirator and all mm. this, and they're resistant to that, even though there's elders there and mm. very high risk people. And so it's almost like you have the geographic reason to go, okay, we can be a little more lax here, but then it conditions people politically to be like, to go full extreme. And then they see what's happening elsewhere and they're like, I don't want my liberties infringed on. And so you can see this dynamic interaction mm -hmm. and, and humans behave as humans. So, I mean, I mm -hmm. understand all of it, mm -hmm. but it, that doesn't make it logical or effective in practice. Yeah. Yeah. And it's important that people do not scold, ridicule, humiliate, make fun of those who choose to wear a mask. They might right. have symptoms. They might have been recently exposed. They might... Be, they might be extra careful for whatever reason. And that's where I hope that we can restore some civility in society because that is a good practice that we should do forever is if you have any respiratory symptoms or exposure, throw I, a mask on. I, I really hope it's shifted the culture because in Asia, it's been like that. Mm -hmm. You know, in Japan, they're like, oh, mask time, sure. Yeah, they don't wear cloth masks either. No, yeah. their masks are like, you know, the Japanese are like, my, my buddy who spent quite a bit of time in Japan said, Japan is like, um, the future in 1950. Like when you go to like Disneyland and you go to Futureland, mm -hmm. that's what Japan is like. Yeah. It's like this kind of almost mythical future state, but it's actually very retro. Uh -huh. And so they have masks that are made of like asbestos <laughs> and, and it works. It's like perfect. Um, how are they doing actually? It's been a minute since I've checked on Japan. I think they've done reasonably well. They did some interesting things early on. They said, you know what? We looked at actually the data. It's these tight, areas with poor ventilation mm. where people are crowded mm. that are that are the over dispersion centers where meaning over dispersion meaning this in those days was a disease that a couple 20% of people were spreading the majority of the disease and mm. it was often these super spreaders in these tight environments so let's maybe deal with those tight environments and let everybody else you know they can wear masks and all that but we're not going to shut down schools we're not going to do all of that mm -hmm. and it seemed to work pretty good now there's some argument recently, I saw a piece, I forget where it was, Atlantic maybe, saying that this over-dispersed nature has actually started to shift more to be more like influenza. We're now, no, actually Omicron's so contagious that there, there isn't a super spreader event anymore. Everybody's a super spreader. Mm -hmm. So it's just going to become ubiquitous. Yeah. Don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that's of, let's just say that if I get Omicron from you right now for being here, it yes. will have been worth it. You know what? I'm willing to take a hit to the lungs and possibly, <laughs> I mean, I, I, my goal is to get acute long COVID. <laughs> acute long COVID. <laughs> like from the first day of symptoms, I'm going to have all the brain fog, the, you know, lethargy, all the other brain, stuff. I would, I would sacrifice 5% of my brain capacity and at least 5,000 alveoli just to be here with you. That's a very specific number and I like it. But again, actually that joking aside, this speaks to what are we willing, what risks are we willing to take to live our lives? Yeah. Huh? To have A, a good time, B, something productive that we can't, you and I can't do this by <laughs> Zoom. There's no way. My, uh, one of my very senior partners at the hospital who's in his eighties and very healthy, early on, in the, I think about this frequently, early on in the pandemic, basically figured out that his risk was 1% of dying of COVID. Mm. I mean, in that ballpark. Mm. 
And he basically decided he, he was smart enough to know this is not going to be just a couple months and basically decided I'm willing to take that risk. I'm going to live my life. Wow. And for a physician to think like that. Right. Now, he was still careful before sure, sure. he got the vaccine, especially after he got the vaccine. I mean, wide open. I mean, living yeah. his life. And he has had this amazing, you know, you never know if that's going to be your last two and a half years of life. But right. he's had an amazing last two and a half years. Right. Still healthy. And I think about that. You know, there's no right way for every person. It's it is a bit of individual custom tailoring what your goals and risk tolerance is. Like Dr. Fauci does not have the risk tolerance after getting four doses of the same COVID vaccine to go to the White House Correspondence Center. Right. 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 I have a different risk tolerance. Right. My, mine is to become a super spreader at said event. Um <laughs> To come in knowing I have COVID and do nothing about it. No, no, it's true. It's true. And I, I think this idea of risk uh, tolerance is an individual thing, Is is, but that's anathema to the public health apparatus, which says, no, actually, you know, currently anyways, it's like, no, there, it's this, mm-hmm. do this, you know. Uh, you know, when they took masking away and the public transport, the judge in Florida, there was you know, much gnashing of teeth and bearing of, uh, of uh, whatever, gritting of, what is the term? I don't even know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not old enough to know these terms. And um, and yet people, what you see is people who are worried still wear the mask and people who aren't don't. One way masking is pretty effective. It's pretty effective. Yeah. If you fit your mask right and you yeah. know what you're doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not a, it's not a thing. So that kind of thing. And instead we forced elders to die alone. We isolated them mm. to the point where they you know, and again, we didn't know everything. And so it's not, it is not intentional, mm-hmm. but again, we're going to look back and be like, oh, dude, we better learn something for the next one. Cause mm-hmm. this is bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you see about, are we going to say something? No, go ahead. You see, uh, see the new England journal this week, plant-based vaccine. There's a plant-based COVID vaccine. Vegan vaccine. It's I about couldn't believe time. it. <laughs> it's Vegan about vaccine. time. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, you know, a cruelty-free vaccine. <laughs> This this will help with some vaccine hesitancy out there, right? I mean, the problem right now is not that we have, you know, millions of people unvaccinated. That is a problem for them, but that is not what's driving the case numbers right. nationally, right? So uh, uh, they, if they're unvaccinated, high risk, they should absolutely get vaccinated, especially yes. if they haven't had COVID. Absolutely. Just got to put that on the record. Yeah, exactly. But, no, I, let's say it again, <laughs> because I keep saying this, like get vaccinated if you haven't had COVID. And even even if you're not at super high risk, it's probably a good idea. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And flu shot and, you know, all the other the good standard, stuff. Yeah. Beet salad. So Shingrix. Um, Shingrix. Yeah. I don't, I, man, I don't want the herpetic Whitlow on my nose. It hurts. It yeah. does hurt. It hurts. Exactly. I, I've heard. So the plant, <laughs> the plant based from my patients, I had a hundred year old patient come in the other day and I was like, dude, what are you doing here? You don't need doctors. What you do not. If you make it to a hundred, you good. don't have to come to a yeah, hospital ever again. ever again. No, but we'll do cereal pap smears. <laughs> Just to make sure, we'll, we'll go ahead and get a colo on a mail. On a mail, <laughs> right? Get a follow-up colonoscopy. For a couple mammoths, right? For a uh, hypertrophic polyp that we saw oh, ten years ago. Man, yeah. There's no such thing as cancer screening after age eighty. We yeah. should abandon the Just idea. Stop it. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So um, they keep trying to get my mom, who's coming up on eighty, to come in and get a colo. And she <laughs> had one like five years ago. It's like, time for your colo. Uh-huh. Like. And is this, and you know, what will happen is there'll be a perf 
there'll be a complication because yeah. yeah. that's just what happens to people who yeah. are unnecessarily screened. Because yeah. she was on steroids for a rash that right. nobody could diagnose. That's right. You know. That's right. The herpetic Whitlow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, anyway, the hundred-year-old patient. I said, "Dude, what are you doing here? You you have got the card to do whatever the heck you want. Right? Smoke, drink. Do you can do? You can have all the motion wine you want. You or you, cocaine." Here you go. That I didn't encourage, <laughs> but I mean, if he did it, I would not stop him, okay? He's 100. He can do whatever he wants. Yeah. And I personally am going to start smoking cigars when I turn 75. That's the threshold? Yeah, because the risk is deferred out about 20 years. Uh, so if I get going at 75, yeah, yeah, I should yeah. be good. Good idea. So um, I told That's him- when I'm going to start smoking crack because I figure, you know, at that point- you get all the benefits of being homeless because you'll have Medicare. So at least you'll have that. Get a nice home sometimes. Exactly. Well, let me know when you start because I'm going to hide my wallet next time I can. <laughs> Marty, <laughs> Marty. Can I borrow some money? Yeah, let me see your wallet. It's so, the leather is wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So um, I told him, look, dude, you're a hundred. You won. Yeah. Okay, you don't need doctors. Yeah. And he just started reflecting on his life. And one of the things he said, uh, it was kind of- Is this a HIPAA mind. violation, by the way? Be careful. No, he said, okay. um, he said, you know- had a good run. The first 50 was the hardest. <laughs> <laughs> That's good news. Yeah. That's good news. I'm going to be 50 next year. I'm hoping it's, it gets easier. First 50 is the hardest. First 50 is the hardest. Yeah, All right, good. According to him. So uh, plant-based vaccine, 70% efficacious. This is just published in the New England Journal of Medicine um, against symptomatic COVID. And the study was done in 2021. Mm. And they, they still use an adjuvant, but I guess this Spike protein has enough homogeneity or similarity to this thing that occurs naturally in plants that they, it's called, it, the title of the article in the New England Journal is the plant-based vax COVID vaccine. That's And I read it, I did a double take. I'm like, is this real? Oh my gosh. Or is this a marketing thing? Right. 79% effective against moderate or severe COVID. Wow. I mean, this thing w works pretty well. Of course, well. it'll never be approved. It'll be approved in 2036. <laughs> probably at the current rate. <laughs> well, I mean, with a tofu adjuvant, it's uh, it's so vegan, it hurts. I actually love that. What would Peter, our friend Peter Atia think of this vegan vaccine? He, um, I don't know, but if anyone knows all the numbers and data- He's already got he, it. He's already got it. And he has it a memorized. team that helps him do it too. Yeah, he's, he's- You know what he's like? Peter Atia is like- Dr. Evil, which he was able to, on my, you know, back saw when we were Stanford, I was an intern and he was a medical student. <laughs> he right. could recite the entire, oh, you know, my, when I was 14, a Zoroastrian named Vilma ritualistically <laughs> shaved my testicles. He did the whole thing, but he's like Dr. Evil with his team of people. Yeah. He's like, Mufasa. Bring me the data on this plant-based vegan vaccine with the side of the tofu adjuvant. That's great. Yeah, he, um, gosh, uh, him and Elon Musk have a lot of similarities. Yeah, the, I, I, I believe it. You know, I believe it. But everything they do, they do a thousandfold, thousandfold, and yep. they do it perfectly. And yep. they're so super disciplined. I mean, he's he's like swam almost all the major channels and swims you can do in the world. It's nuts. And I remember talking to him about this. He's like, yeah, and that's when I really started thinking about. 
um, low carb solutions because when I would swim, I would I would suck on this carbohydrate solution to have energy, and I found myself I would vomit every you know so many meters, and I was like I'm just tired of vomiting all the time, so I thought maybe there's something. I'm like this guy can like tolerate a sport where he's just vomiting Q you know however many meters. And and just like maybe maybe I'll try to not vomit. Like it's nuts. And he would he would draw his own blood like hundreds of times a week. <laughs> yeah, to kind of measure stuff and and do his own like n of one studies. Yeah, and, yeah. he needed to be on epigen. He was drawing his blood. So I mean, <laughs> he ever graph for you like his cholesterol levels or in, oh, oh yeah, all the I've subtypes seen, oh, and all that stuff. Oh yeah, lipoprotein little this and that. Yeah, and the lipoprotein other thing. little a, which is actually a cool thing. Yeah. Um, also, the New England Journal of Medicine, convalescent plasma. Remember that? Yeah, I remember you talking about that some months ago. We did and a then show on everyone it. going, yeah, everyone going, it doesn't work. We're done. Doesn't work. Yeah. Right. And then a study came out kind of supporting the idea it didn't work after the study came out showing it did work. Mm. And the FDA commissioner at the time had all heaven and earth come down on him because he said something like there was a 13% absolute risk reduction and he should have said relative oh, risk that's reduction right. that's right yeah, yeah, yeah right yeah and he was a little too enthusiastic he that's shouldn't right. have right there it was such a controversy and it was all politicized too because trump was all for it and so on i don't right. know if the number was 13 percent, but something like whatever it went it was, from yeah. like 13 to 10 percent. right was, he misspoke yeah so um so here study on convalescent plasma 54 percent risk reduction with covid for um for what? For severe disease? For death? They just describe it as risk reduction, but mm. the outcomes were hospitalization uh-huh. and severe illness. Got it. Now- um, I imagine it has to be given early. If I read more than the abstract, I could tell you more. <laughs> but I'm kind of an abstract guy. You know what? Me too. You too? I find abstract thinking, that's going to be the author of my <laughs> auto. That's my thinking. autobiography. Abstract thinking. Abstract. The evidence-based dreaming. <laughs> I'm an abstract guy. Yeah, yeah. So th- they get this in the, and you know, the controversy, the guys at Hopkins who were doing the convalescent plasma trial along with the guy from Mayo and a bunch of people nationwide. Remember, that was the hot thing when COVID hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are, That's all we had. At least one of those guys has been telling me sort of privately, but now it's not private because we're, <laughs> how frustrating it's been that there's been this downplaying of convalescent plasma it's cheap, it's effective, it's antibodies. You're giving antibodies. It's been completely sidelined by pharma because no CEO is making billions off of convalescent donor blood, you know, right, plasma. Right. But then you manufacture the antibodies in the lab and, and all of a sudden it's, it's like- a billion dollar product. Yeah, no, yeah. so yes, we need monoclonal antibodies, but when you have a new variant and the monoclonal antibodies don't work, how about go try the convalescent plasma when you don't have access to monoclonal antibodies when we don't have funding to cover. Remember, there was a big shortage. So this study, a little late, two and a half years late, by the way, convalescent plasma has been around 100 years, 54% risk reduction. Now, this is this is interesting. I could totally, when you write in the JAMA and the New England Journal, one little known fact is that the editors will hand write edits when I say hand sometimes in Microsoft Word or the, but they will tell you exactly how they want it worded right. and they will add things that you don't want, but it's not accepted. So you're like, okay. So, you know, we have a study on natural immunity published in JAMA. So there's a line in there about like, no inferences can be derived from this data. And it's like, 
we didn't write that. You know, uh, it's like the editor really wanted it in right, there. I'll right, probably right. be blackballed from JAMA now. But so this line appears in the New England Journal article. In the abstract, it's like such a denial. It's such a strong statement. You know, it didn't come from the authors. <laughs> Evidence on efficacy in vaccinated participants cannot be inferred. Right. <laughs> it's like, why are you saying that in the abstract? Uh, and it's like, so the convalescent plasma study that showed the 54% risk reduction was done in unvaccinated people. Right. Because they wanted a pure sample. So why would you put such a strong statement that you cannot infer that this also benefits vaccinated why, people? Why don't you say instead, we did not directly study vaccinated people, more data is necessary. Or it may or may not right. benefit vaccinated people. Right. It seems a little um, leading. It's almost <laughs> as if the journal receives a lot of money from pharma for advertisements. Oh, that's a... No, I take the... Can we retract yeah, that? Yeah, he, yeah I, I love, was going to say, that's a I'm handy about love. I'm, I'm, you I'm, are about love. Yeah, well, I love pharma. They do a lot of good things. They save lives. They actually do. Yeah. I actually know many people in pharma. Uh, I, I'm a big critic of the business practices mm. of pharma and the whole medical industrial complex yeah, as a whole. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm accused of being both a pharma shill and someone who ought to shill pharma more. <laughs> so uh, it's a difficult and also rewarding position to be in because you're just trying to find, look, we need all these entities, but the way it's structured now, and I don't know if you have any friends from med school or uh, smart. <laughs> <laughs> They're the worst. <laughs> Who work for pharma. <laughs> yes, I do. But there's some great people. Yeah, they're I mean, really are, smart people. Yeah. And they're frustrated with academics and right. the old, you know, lab university and, grant for NIH fund making. And they go out and they have all this money and capital and lab space. Well, as, as Vinay said recently on one of our shows, he said, you know, the difference between academic research and going into pharma is narrowed mm. because it's the same thing now. It's all about therapeutics and it's all about these clinical trials. And mm. so why not go get paid a butt ton and do it with pharma and get treated nice and not have to deal with all the politics on the academic side. And so a lot of people are leaving academics are never entering it and going direct into the pharma space, which I don't think bodes well for the future of academics because we we need reform in academics and Vinay is quite passionate about that as well. I don't even know what academics means What does anymore. it even mean, dude? I mean, you, you meet some of these community hospital docs, they're training students yeah. and residents that are yeah. working with them. They're yeah. writing articles. I mean, That's this, right. Case this, reports and yeah. I mean, this neonatologist I met in, in Texas who's done a lot of amazing work on golden hour colostrum, skin to skin time, probiotics to reduce necrotizing enterocolitis, uh, delayed cord clamping, even up to 60 seconds over 45 seconds with a real market benefit. Mm. I mean, all this ne the, this research that this one neonatologist doing, is doing in a community Baylor Scott and White Hospital in McKinney, Texas. Mm. And it's unbelievable. And it just goes to show she didn't need to be at the university and, you know, get her full professor and all the, I mean, all the games we play in academics. Right. Here she's just doing it. And it's so amazing. And you realize the line between academics and just being a comprehensive, creative thinking, research-minded, abstract-oriented doctor <laughs> is, you know, there's really no line anymore. Evidence-based dreaming. Yeah. I like that. And a lot of the art, academic docs are now put on the RVU hamster wheel. So oh, it's the same thing. Yeah. Basically the same It's the same thing. thing, yeah. Well, you know, and what's interesting too is now, you know, California, because- 
even practicing in these situations has become such a disaster. You're usually practicing for a big group and they're making you sign things like illegal non-compete agreements. And there's something that you showed me here. Mm. California further restricts non-disparagement provisions in employment, settlement, and severance agreements. What is that? That's what good. That? So we shouldn't be gagging people when they settle with the hospital, right? They have had some horrible tragedy done. And yet- and yet, that's, so this is what California is doing—the right thing, but that that they allow this. So, for example, um, the Redonda Vaught case, the nurse in Tennessee. Oh uh, yeah, they had settled with the family. The hospital did try to shut all that piece up, and there was a gag order in that that the family could not discuss the case. And Vanderbilt cites that as to why they can't discuss. That's their, right. They created their own gag clause. That's right. So I'm going to be talking about that case with uh, Peter Atia on his uh, podcast. Oh, great. We're, we're doing all the Our, research. How's your right cortisol now. levels right now? I, I feel like I'm studying he, for my board. Is he is he going to make you have a law degree <laughs> on top of everything? I am getting my law degree just in case. Just in case yeah. you better and take the bar in all the states because otherwise. I mean, at any point, you might mistake Alaskan law on the subject of gag orders. <laughs> <laughs> you meant take the bar exam, not take Bill Barr in with me to the- Do that too. I need a lawyer there Yeah, with you're going to need a, yeah. Um, Just get, bring Rudy Giuliani out here. He's, uh, he's pretty slick. <laughs> no comment. So um, GW. Yes. <clears throat> I should, probably shouldn't name the institution. We'll call them WG. Okay, well, I'm going to yeah. de-identify it. <laughs> WG. <laughs> Do you really need me to edit that out? <laughs> ah, what the heck? You only live once. Columbus took a chance. You know what? I got to say this, guys. This I got to say. I've had many guests who are like, you know what? Can we just edit that? And usually I'm like, can we not? And they're like, well, it's a little bit of an argument. Marty has never once asked me to remove anything, even after he realizes that's a career ending statement. <laughs> I'm just going to keep that. That's what I love about Marty. Those statements Authentic. are about every other Every other statement. Every other statement. (laughs) So um, this hospital, um, (laughs) this hospital (laughs) um, told all their doctors, we are going to disband your contracts. Your contracts are invalid and we're going to re-sign you with new contracts. They had a consulting firm come in. You know, our buddies from college. Yeah, Yeah, the Bobs come on in. (laughs) They paid a ton of money. They say, okay. Change your contract with all your doctors. They have all the thousands of doctors, presumably. This is the, you know, GW, the dean is Barbara Bass, and, you know, she okays this. They all get new contracts. The new contracts have in them a non-disparaging clause. Oh, so you can't talk smack about the org. Yeah, you can't talk about the man anymore. Wow. And so- Well, that's a good way to encourage- uh, that's, that's just right up there with not doing just culture when you're talking about error reporting. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you know? exactly. It's like, oh, well, if I can go to jail for making a mistake, then I'm not going to tell anyone about it. And now, no matter what the hospital does or whatever's happening, they know their staff can't talk about it without getting sued. Yeah. Is that legal or non-disparate? I mean, California is pushing on it. It's legal, but it's unethical, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're physicians, right? right? You're gagging physicians. Yep. You're gagging physicians just to work. You're gagging physicians in settlement cases. That's not right. And non-competes are just as bad in my opinion, because you're saying you're pretty much trapped here. Like you can't go across the street to somebody who's, you know, well, they're, they're poaching. Well, maybe they're offering better pay and benefits for the same work or yeah. less, 
I think that's called competition. Yes. Right? It's crazy. Yes. And you and I have talked about this. Like, healthcare is so opaque. Like, you don't have price transparency. You have surprise billing. You have no idea whose contracts are negotiated with what because it's all opaque. So you don't know what this insurance company is paying for this and they can't tell each other. And there's all these gag stuff in that. And then we go, yeah, but we in America, we don't have socialized medicine, man. It's free, it's free market, but it's mm, not. Mm. It's like the opposite of the free mm. market. <laughs> yeah, and we're given these false choices on how to fix healthcare. Like, yeah, yeah, do you support this legislation or that legislation? Right. Um, do you support getting rid of certificate or need or not? Like, there's value in those discussions, but that's not the central thing. If we want to really get at the core issues in healthcare, it's very simple. Get rid of secrecy, yeah. get rid of kickbacks. Mm-hmm. And get rid of gag rules. Yeah. Right? Allow an open forum and market to work in That's a way right. that is designed. And and create tools that allow that transparency so patients can actually become educated consumers. Our mutual friend, Marshall Allen, talks mm. about this a lot, you know? And I recently, I, I told this story on our VPZD podcast with Vinay that, you know, I mean, the if people are still getting these ridiculous bills with no transparency. They'll ask up front in the ER, is my insurance gonna cover this? What will my take home bill be? That And they go, oh, it's fine, it'll be zero. They'll tell them something like mm. that. And then they get a $2,000 bill. And uh, and these are people that are living on the margins. Like that's two months rent, mm. you know? And um, mm-hmm. it's absurd. And they're scared, so they want to pay the first bill because they don't want their credit rating further destroyed. Yeah, they're scared. That. Yeah, but then the minute you do that, you're, you're, you're pretty much cooked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? So his whole book was never pay the first bill. Great book. Yeah, it is. Yeah, people are getting, we forget a lot of times that half of America does not live like us. Half of America has less than $500 of cash on hand. They live paycheck to paycheck. And when they get a $3,000 bill, it can be catastrophic to their goals or their plans to get their kid into a community college. Um, you know, is, we forget that. When I see these policy panels at the big conferences with the head of OptumRx and the head of, you know, this hospital system and this policy wonk, I'm thinking – where is the representation or the voice of that 50% of America who lives paycheck to paycheck? You you know where they are? They're serving the meals for that conference. Mm. And you can see them in the back. And you know, I know this, and I know you've had this experience too. When I give a talk, when I do my, my thing, and I'm talking about, okay, here was how healthcare was, here's how it is now, here's where it needs to be, here's what I think this rehumanized system can work like, how you would fund it and how you would pay for it. Afterwards, there, it's the staff that are that are cleaning up, that are stacking the chairs, that are doing the audio video, that are serving the meals, that will come up to me and say, mm. that was amazing. Like, I wish my doctor worked in a clinic like that or had this kind of thing. And like, do you ever see this happening? Like, and they'll tell you the stories about their mother who's in the hospital and got this ridiculous bill. And you're just like, and, and but but everybody who's like actually participating in the conference is like, well, you know, uh, my motion vineyards came in, and uh, Buffy and I are going to be uh, hanging a bag of normal saline just to hydrate in advance. Uh, it's 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 uh, it is two Americas. Yeah, it is. It is the Patagonia. <laughs> hey, you know, how dare Aspen, you? I have you know. a Patagonia jacket that I was given to free by Twenty Three and Me. It's the. Uh, are you going to be in Aspen? I'm going to be there. Which week? Yeah, you know, exactly. it's that whole. Um, but yeah, so um, Aspen. <laughs> I think we I think we just forget a lot of times about the calling and the mission, and yeah, you know, we attract the best people in medicine, and it's almost as if we they we allow them to get distracted by these 
sort of organizational sins that we didn't commit, we inherited. Right. 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 Yeah, no, that's a good way to talk about it. And and in a way, you could say, are we complicit in it by not paying attention, by not waking up to it? I think to some degree you could say there's a little passive complicity. Especially when you're getting paid, it's very hard to question the rules or or look for truth when you're you know, this is a quote from Upton Sinclair, I think when your salary depends on you not knowing that. Mm. And um, and that's part of the problem. I think we have to accept that too as physicians, right? And the gag rule doesn't, the gagging your doctors with non-disparagement clause doesn't help. Doesn't help, doesn't, doesn't help. help. And you know, I think we're still in these very broken models of funding healthcare where, you know, if a hospitalist is fee for service, they are gonna to wanna to see 40 patients, they're gonna pack it up, they're gonna churn through, they're gonna do the minimal necessary because you have to, to survive. But if you're if you're paid differently, you know, you do well financially by doing good for patients and for the team, that kind of payment mm. model. Mm. And, you know, and whether that's capitation with some revenue share, whether that's bundled payments, you know, I don't know the full answer and it depends on the specialty and depends on the mm. geography. Mm. It's, it, there isn't a one side, like you said, it's not a dichotomy. Mm-hmm. The same with single payer. Like people say, well, it's either single payer or the shit's storm we have now. <laughs> it's like, why is that a dichotomy? Yeah. Like you can actually make a lot of changes that would bend the cost curve that then allow employers say to cover uh, the, the bill without making us bankrupt as a nation. Yeah. yeah. The thing about single payer is people compare immediately switching to a single payer, which is a fresh new single payer system right. to the current system when what you should really do is compare a single payer system 20 years down the line to what the current system will turn into 20 years down the line. Ah. Because the current system I do think is getting more efficient. There's more disruptors. Right. We're seeing more transparency. It's right. We see doctors mobilize. I mean, this group I was just with of physicians who run their own surgery centers. I and, see that as well. Right? Yeah. And the single payer systems in, inevitably in every country where they have been uh, implemented degenerate over time. Yeah. So the bureaucracy and bloat and bloat and across the board cuts. Governments cannot resist. Right. Invariably, they lose the initial enthusiasm 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, across the board cuts, and you have a dilapidated system sometimes in 20, 30 years. Look at Medicare. They've done that themselves, right? That's true. And it's not to say Medicare is a bad program, but They are doing exactly this trend, right? So it's not the it's a false choice, I think. A lot it's and it's also not feasible. And let's talk about what's feasible. Talk about what's feasible in a country that has a particular history, ethos, geography, mm-hmm. politics. So let's be realistic, but also let's understand that thinking in that dichotomy is just simply going to not allow the right evolution that we that we all want collectively. Mm-hmm. Like we all want universal coverage. Like the idea yeah. you and I as a doctor yeah. have to worry about whether our patient can pay for what is happening is it causes moral injury. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the worst. That's why like, I think m- many younger doctors are like, just man, just socialize the whole thing, make it single payer. And then I don't even have to think about that component of it. And that's one piece of it that would be off the plate. What they then don't think about is all that, again, 20 years down the line, when you talk to Europeans and stuff, the doctors, they'll say, our system is like, I know you have problems. We have problems too. <laughs> I met this amazing guy, uh, Carlos Cardina, I believe is his name. And he has a hospital. He um, is one of the administrators. He's a physician who who runs one of these physician-owned hospitals in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. Mm. And there's a lot of poor people there. And, you know, he's made a conscious decision to say, I'm gonna, we're going to earn less and make sure that we take care of anybody does not have insurance mm. and we will take care of any Medicaid patient who walks in the door 
and we're not going to harass them and we're going to just treat them with open arms. Mm. And when he started the physician-owned hospital back in the day, one of the big criticisms of him and this whole effort was saying, oh, well, they're not going to take care of Medicaid patients. He's now one of the top Medicaid providers in the entire state. Wow. And it's unbelievable. And it's it's the altruism. It's, it's the, the heritage yeah, of It's medicine. the heritage of the calling of medicine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I keep saying now, and, and <clears throat> I kind of changed my language on this a little from tools, resources, and autonomy, which is the business definition of capability uh, when physicians feel capable, to um, tools, team, and trust. So this is, this is what I mean. If you give doctors and nurses and frontline professionals tools, meaning good technology, disruptive technologies that allow them to do the human thing, if you give them teams, meaning actual people that are all inspired by real leaders mm. and a cohesion, and maybe they have part ownership in this thing and mm -hmm. it's self-managed to some degree, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and then you give them trust, which is saying, we've given you these things. We know that you're doing this because it's a calling we're gonna give you the autonomy you need to make the decisions that sometimes are difficult, that sometimes are counterproductive in the short run, but much more productive in the long run. And that's what sounds like this doc mm -hmm. is doing. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is a terrible decision in the front. No, 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 mm -hmm. no, mm -hmm. trust me, right? You know, one, um, I don't know if I should share this, but no, what the heck. It's never stopped you. Anytime you oh, ask that question. <clears throat> this is a little personal. So for me, one of the best things mm -hmm. that ever happened to me was the decision to get off the RVU hamster wheel, oh. knowing I was gonna make less money, mm -hmm. right? Because we're, we're all paid in surgery based on productivity and there's a, a bonus, even though there's a salary at the universities. So basically I made a conscious decision. I've got these other passions I really wanna pursue. And I recognize that if I don't, you know, exceed the RVU target, I will not get this big bonus. Mm -hmm. And but I'm going to pursue what I what I really want to pursue, and that was so liberating, and it feels great, and I'm doing what I love, and ultimately, you know, some of that other stuff becomes lucrative over time, right. and helps you know cover that gap. But it's such a, a hard step to jump to get off the treadmill, and I talk to doctors all the time who have these passions. And they are on the, the hamster wheel and they're just debating, do I step off or do I stay on? And it's very addictive to stay on it, right? Oh, man, you're pointing at something that like, I'm very passionate about this because I did the same thing, right? Mm. It's like, oh, I have a guaranteed thing. And actually the more patients I see, the more I get paid mm. and it's doing well and all the retirement and all the other stuff that you get with that. And, and, and everybody's different, right? So your thing was stepping away from RVU. And then what ends up happening is you start pursuing the passion projects that are authentically you. Mm. And then strangely, you actually make a living doing that. <laughs> it's like, well, how did that happen? Well, because you're doing good in the world. And for some reason, and it doesn't have to be, you're not gonna get rich and all that. Maybe you will, but it doesn't really matter. What matters is that you're actually engaged, you're happy, you're making a difference, and then you're supporting your family or you're paying your mortgage or whatever, and that just comes with it. And there's so many doctors and nurses and stuff who feel trapped. It, it, some of it is this, non-disparagement agreements, non-compete agreements, the, 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 the brainwashing that a lot of management does, and I use the term management instead of leadership because they're not leading, they're managing, they're trying to control. Um, where they don't have trust, right? They're like, we must control these people. They'll say, you'll never get a job like this where you make this much money and work with you know, these resources. You'll never get that. So don't even try to leave because you are not coming back if you do. Mm. And uh, that kind of thing gets doctors and nurses and everybody feeling very trapped. And, and the truth is you and I both know this experience of liberation 
You know, I, I back in 2012 when I stepped away from the Stanford Hospital thing, uh, it was terrifying, man. And yeah, yeah. you make less money. You're yeah. like, oh, what what happened? <laughs> and your colleagues are wondering what's oh. wrong with you. Your parents, your you know, the administrators are basically putting out like the the rank order list of who's bringing in the most ah. RVUs and money, and you're now at the bottom, at the bottom of the group, it. you know? And yep. people are like, oh my gosh, you know. What's going on? Did he lose? Is he okay mentally? Is he, like, is he depressed? <laughs> like, he's on motion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is this is my antidepressant. Um, no, it's really true. And all those pressures were hardwired to care about as tribal social creatures. So that's another back feedback loop back. Again, you always point out, Marty, that the Krebs cycle was a not important thing to learn, right? But I would argue back and say, no, it's the key thing because feedback loops, you know, that ATP feeding back on that pyruvate kinase dehydroxyl place. You, I don't you, know what that you're is. right. You're right. I've been getting that feedback from the urea cycle. But <laughs> you know what? I actually uh, believe more strongly in the Cori cycle, which is only in plants. And I feel, I feel it's, I, I, we ought to be teaching it in medical school because just as a metaphor for what humans might do, which is fix carbon, I think it would be very important. Could you imagine, I've said this before, here's my idea. Now you talk about innovation. You talk about out of the box thinking, you talk about following your passion. My passion is this, feeding patients in ICU settings is very difficult. You can get aspiration, you can get mm -hmm. um, TPN related complications, mm -hmm. liver problems, gallbladder, all this stuff, line infections. What if? we injected chlorophyll under the skin of a very sick chronic ICU patients. And then all we did is we opened the windows and let them photosynthesize. They would produce their own oxygen, which we could harvest and they could breathe. And they would fix carbon from the air, which means the hospital would become carbon neutral, which would save the hospital in a carbon exchange economy, millions of dollars. And they would generate glucose. Come on. Am I wrong? That That is as logical as my remedy when I was a first-year medical student and some a family member came to me sick and I said, we need to give them ATP. <laughs> <laughs> Just cut to the chase <laughs> metabolically. It's the only thing I knew. Why are we giving glucose? That I mean, that's like saying, you know what? This guy needs money. Give him some nickel or so he can mint his own <laughs> nickels. It's like, no, how about you just, you know, give him, give him the equivalent of a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. It, uh, but no one, no one has purchased my idea probably because it's scientifically completely unfeasible. I'll tell you what, we'll do an abstract. We'll do an abstract. We'll do up. an abstract. <laughs> I'll just read the abstract. It'll be called, it'll be called the Kermit solution. Could green patients lead to green hospitals and and more green in the administrator's pockets? And we'll have the New England Journal insert a line. Inferences on actual application of chlorophyll cannot be derived from this paper. <laughs> right in the abstract. In, in, inferences on well-fed floor <laughs> patients cannot be made. Oh, man, that's... It, it is interesting. We, um, we take people who are sick. Uh, we wrote, we wrote an article on this a couple of years ago. We take people in medicine and let's take a step back and look at the macro, which is something sometimes you can only do when you're off the hamster wheel, right? Right. What are we doing? People come in with an ailment. They have they come in with a medical condition, and then we admit them into the hospital and give them two more medical conditions. Yep. Sleep deprivation and malnutrition. Yep. You know, feeding them the crap or not feeding them because they're NPO off and on until radiology might do something and now they can't get to it. And, you know, 
So he, we, they come in with one condition. Now they've got three. And then they bounce back and we scratch our head. We scratch our head. Why? <laughs> yeah. And we've made them, we've given them ICU delirium, yeah. uh, which, which, because we don't let them have visitors, we don't uh, keep their sleep wake cycles intact. Mm-hmm. Um, we give them blood clots because we make them stay in bed and they're not just sitting up and doing their thing because it's hard because we're understaffed. And we give them opportunistic infections and all this. And we do it in the name of, well, you know, we should just admit you for a few days to make sure that that sodium normalizes. Yeah. Like, like well, the days they kept cataracts in the hospital for two weeks. Oh man. So I'm so inspired by the students now that come through. And really? They, yeah. They're not just lazy pieces of crap. Cause that's There's what you're supposed to say at, the, at our age. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They don't, they don't know every last anatomical part of the gubernaculum. <laughs> Which they don't well, teach anatomy anymore. Kid, what are the seven segments of the epididymis in order? <laughs> like, I didn't even know it was divided that way. Okay, the brachial plexus, that's <laughs> child's plexus. play. I want to know <laughs> the gubernaculum. Man, so we're going deep on that one. They, um, they want to get at these underlying issues. They want to be in the community. They want to talk about school lunch programs and not just yeah. bariatric surgery. They want to Macro. talk about food as medicine, the microbiome. They want. They don't want to do what they're seeing many of us do, which is just fee for service, whack a mole, mm-hmm. end stage treatment of conditions that could could be handled upstream. Mm-hmm. And there's all these things about kids now that are just surprising. Like, did you see this thing about? Um, I think there's a piece on it. There's an article here about. They're not drinking. Oh yeah, right here. Uh, young Americans more likely to say no to alcohol, study finds. And it says between 2002, 2018, the number of adults aged uh, 18 to 22 who abstained from drinking alcohol increased from 20 to 28% for those in college. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Are you kidding? I would not have guessed that. And for those not in school, the percentage was 30%. <laughs> Usually you're <laughs> drinking if you're not in school because you're like, God, I'm my life. Um, up from 24% in 2002, alcohol abuse among both groups decreased by roughly half. What is going on? They're eating better. They're not drinking. They're not interested in the motion. <laughs> they are different. They're, they're yeah. a social justice-minded generation that wants to live a healthy life. Man, that's great. Now, I would, I would, now I'm gonna give you a darker interpretation for younger people. <laughs> so younger people have been shown to drink less, do less drugs, less risky behavior, less teen pregnancy, less um, reckless driving and things like that, less driving in general. Mm-hmm. Also, less engagement in sports that aren't fully, you know, regulated by the parental scheduling machine, less uh, socializing outside of this. And so they're quite anxious and quite unhappy. So there is a um, interesting shift in that. And I don't know if that's what's happening in the 18 to 22 year olds. It may be that just people are like, you know, Uh, yeah. So they're different problems. It's not binge drinking at the rate it was, but it's addiction to Instagram. Right. TikTok and right and and in an involuted kind of um, unhappiness. Now, I, again, this is speculation, uh, but you do see this kind of general trend that they're they're doing less of the things that you and I might have done to put ourselves in jeopardy, mm. but they do other things that may be equally or even more hazardous. We don't know, mm. but but again, that is encouraging because these these problems have been human problems for millennia, mm-hmm. right? Teenage drinking and all of this and, and the disasters that happen with that. So in many ways, we have an opportunity now. If we can pull some of the, the other junk back, 
like the Instagram garbage and got Meta. Meta just opened its first brick and mortar retail store in Burlingame up the road. That's going to be great. I mean, what do you, what do you, what exactly does Zuckerberg sell in a Facebook retail store? Like a little like emoji, like a physical like emoji? What, I mean, antidepressants? Antidepressants. <laughs> it's, uh, it's crazy. I, I'm okay. I don't need to go there. Yeah. 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 You're going to not go? Yeah, we can I'm go right, right now. We just get an Uber and go. I'm all right. <laughs> Are you sure? Yeah. Let me see what I'll else. Go we... to that sushi place instead. Oh, now, yeah. one thing I do like about, um, the, you know, another sort of positive of the current up and coming generation we see in the students and the residents is this sort of carefulness with language. You know, I know we make fun of the, right, right, you know, right. the sort of extreme of that. And right. The wokeness. The wokeness. Yeah. But, you know, we were referring to patients as gomers, gomers, smokers. You know, the first oh, yeah. thing we, that we characterize a human being. Yeah. Their entire life as we present them. Yeah. You, know, you have four seconds to do a sign out. Right. You know, 61-year-old smoker. Right. The it, judgment it, right there, yeah. <laughs> smoking has nothing to do with their inguinal hernia, right? But right. that's how we would describe, you know, vasculopath. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, what a terrible term, calling a human being a vasculopath. vasculopath. Right. Any path. Right. right. It's just. I prefer psychopath. That's my go to. <laughs> it's very close. Now to that, the word. Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't really talked. I thought about this a lot, but the way, even when, when I, you know, when I was a student, that's how you'd present. You'd be like, 47 <laughs> year old vasculopath with. Vasculopath. Uh, and they're like, 47? What? Oh, well, he's a smoker as well. Oh. Oh. So he's a smoker, a vasculopath. He's a horrible and something citizen. else like alcoholic. You know, yeah. you throw it all in. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, that paints the picture. So paints the picture. First of all, people can like care a little bit less. Yeah. Because they're like, well, this is all on him. And the next thing you do is you go, well, anything we do is just like, this is going to be beneficial by default because he's already wrecked himself. Right. And you blame them for the disease. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the stages of burnout. You blame patients. Oh, totally. Right. I went through that phase actually. I've been through all of them. (laughs) Every single fluctuate sometimes within a day. I'm still in denial. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Within a day, you go through the full. It's true, it's true, it's true, it's true. And the more stress you're under, the more you go through those phases uh, again, you know, you recapitulate them. Yeah. Like an embryo still has a tail, you know, you're like, yeah, but I still sometimes use the word Gomer. I really shouldn't do that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's okay. You know, one of, one of my great joys in life, again, following the authentic path is like, okay, step off the hamster wheel and do this thing. I got the chance to interview uh, Sam Shem, the author of oh, House yeah. of God, yeah, yeah, a few times. And uh, he's just such a, he's such a gem, man. He, talk about an activist, like that guy. And he's mm. like 76, 77. He was cut his teeth in the sixties and was all about like, went into medicine to try to change the world and just saw how broken it was and wrote House of God as like an act of defiance. He's like, I'm gonna show everybody mm. just how horrible this is. Now we talk about like, you know, health um, 2.0 is burning everybody out and all this, but he was talking about physician suicide you know, in 1980, mm-hmm. I mean, that was in the book mm. and, and you just go, gosh, you know, this guy's so ahead of the head of the game. Uh, and he invented that term Gomer, get out of my ER. Uh, and, and he used it in there as a kind of way to say, look, look how we dehumanize everybody. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. It affects how we, you know, how we treat our, uh, the patients. And um, so, I mean, I, I am glad that we're now we're talking about people with diabetes instead of right. diabetic. And it takes a while to actually, you know, sometimes my mind just, you're talking quick in the hospital, you tend to use the oh, word yeah. diabetic. So, yeah. you know, let's forgive each other for honest mistakes, but it's good we're ta- thinking differently. 
And you know what it is? It's, so I struggle with the language policing, right? Like when people say, well, no, you're a bad person for saying, you know, smoker. But but what you could say is, ah, you know, so when you, like if you're talking to a, a student, say, mm -hmm. and you're trying to talk about what you're just saying, which is how we think about, because language and thought are, are they're not two, really. Mm -hmm. So how you, how you think actually uh, does is influenced and influences your speech. So if you say, you know, somebody with diabetes and you make one time where you're like, oh, I get, I get the distinction. You're saying they have this condition, but it's not, first of all, it's not who they are. And it's not some fault of theirs, whatever. Even though their behavior may contribute, there's multifactorial things that lead to their behavior that if you were molecule for molecule them, you'd do the same behavior. Mm -hmm. So let's just mention that as a way that you could change how you talk. It might change how you think about it. And, and, and that's okay, right? I think there is a, there an extreme view that like that kind of, you know, that's just woke language and you can't talk like that. And, and uh, I make fun of it a lot when it goes to the extreme in the other way where they're policing your language and making judgments about you because of the language you use. Yeah. So this is where what we're using language for and these changes in language was just saying, we're trying not to stigmatize or judge people. That's why we're changing the language. We're stigmatizing and judging people who use the wrong language. <laughs> yeah, it's the prioritization, right? I mm. mean, you're, if you're saving someone's life, this is not the, the not number the time. one thing, right? Not the time, They can right? be a smoker at that point, right? Like the National Academy of Medicine, probably shouldn't say anything about them. <laughs> so you're about to. Um, on the nomination form, uh, and full disclosure, I'm a member of the National Academy of Medicine. There's a, there, it's like a one-page nomination form. And that at the very top is a box that says, you know, check this if they are working in climate change and health. Oh, my. Now, it's an important topic, but is that really the priority? Is the level of priority deserved to be that high where it, def you know, it says a lot? I mean, there's a one-page nomination form right at the top, climate change and health. Yeah. And there, there's something about you know, priority there about health equity, which is important. But now you get the, you know, you'll see an application that'll be like, I, you know, did this biochemistry, you know, discovered whatever pathway and a champion for health that, equity. That's right. It's like- At that point, it becomes a badge. It becomes a kind of a litmus test. It's a show. It's a show. And that's what I hate. That's what I There's hate. There's a lot of that. Because AMA does that with their whole like health equity thing now. They're like, we we believe in anti-racism and they're using all the catchphrases and you're like, how about you actually represent physicians who want actual real change? How about you say something when this colleges are testing people twice a week who are asymptomatic and immune? Bingo. And the local community, including the minority population and the poor people, Getting can't nothing. get a Getting COVID nothing. test. Getting nothing. Right. These are the, the <laughs> you know, school closures, the way yeah. you just showed about that Harvard report on yeah. inequity gaps are were greater, right? But yeah. the school closures and and weren't seen in places within person. These are the issues right in front of us, right? And sometimes we get so caught up in the showmanship of it on the pa at the panels of the national conferences where there's a panel on socioeconomic determinants of health, an important topic, but we're not doing anything talking to ourselves, <laughs> nothing, right? Nothing. Hey, hey, Do pr it. Pretty much if you say the phrase, suddenly you're okay, 
Yeah. Like you're morally okay by saying the phrase. Now, how about you actually go and do something? Like, you know, when I talk about our clinic and what we did, mm -hmm. how do you address social determinants of health? You don't go talk about social determinants of health. You don't talk about it. You go you and do it. it. You, you go it. get health coaches from the community you're serving yeah. who are in a pipeline of growth themselves in the organization. So yeah. they're learning stuff. They end up going to nursing school or medical school or PA school. They come from that community. They speak the language. They know what is in the hearts and the heads of that population. And they can sit with uh, the, the little old lady from that community and motivate her because they they trust each other. Now that's addressing social determinants of health. Your friends from Penn who work with that, um, I'm forgetting her name, she was on my show. That's how you do it. You don't mm -hmm. sit around talking about equity and talking about social determinants of health. Yeah. Just go do something. Do it. And then stop signaling to everybody that you're doing it like I just did. <laughs> Now you I mean you're you see people doing it and it's inspiring but just in the public conversation it's such a there are these giant blind spots mm. of health inequity as people are just talking about it in their echo chambers mm. and you know you want to point these out so for example right now there's a proposal to spend an, to get another 23 billion dollars for covid a lot of the Paxlovid is going to people who are asymptomatic mm -hmm. and immune and the study that shows that it saves lives was done in people unvaccinated. with symptoms who were high risk and unvaccinated. But yet we're seeing a ton of people be, being put on this drug who don't need it. That's called low value care. We're, we're pissing money away right now. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, women can't get prenatal vitamins mm -hmm. in some states. I mean, these are the obvious, you know. Absolutely. Or how about this? Aging of the population Many people want to stay at home as they get older and sicker, and we know it's better for them. It's better for their mental state. Uh, it's better for opportunistic infections. It's better for ba basically everything, but they can't get home. Health aides are in short supply. Home health aides are paid on average something like $13 an hour nationwide, which is like McDonald's pays more in many communities, and they know that. So they're like, why am I doing this incredibly it's a calling to, to actually get someone up to the toilet, clean them up, get them into bed. They form these deep bonds with the people they're caring for in their home, which is a sacred space. Like it's this beautiful calling and they're paid like garbage for it. Mm. So they can't get enough people to do it. Who's paying for it? Oh, well, we need $23 billion to test college students. <laughs> yeah, twice <laughs> tw a week. Twice a week yeah. for, for something that's not gonna really hurt them and on scale. give them Paxlovid when they test give positive, them no Paxlovid. symptoms. That's right. Because, yeah. you know, they might infect grandma who's can't get home care. They might become a vasculopath. Or a smoker, heaven forbid. <laughs> by the way, less of that going on. Um, I was at the VA, by oh, the way. Speaking of smokers. <laughs> yeah, speaking of vasculopaths. <laughs> so um, I was at the VA, you know, in terms of the, that language, you know, paints how you treat someone, right? Because yeah. you already are treating them like, you know, dangling that finger, you know, mm -hmm. like you non-compliant, bad, bad, right? So they, um, the chief resident said he, he was basically in a rush to get rounds done and a new patient was admitted and he's like, well, where's this patient? Is he in the ER? No, he just got, you know, placed on 4E or something. So he goes to the floor, obviously to do a quick H&P and his entire H&P was rushing into the room saying to the guy, because his amylase and lipase were elevated on the lab test before we went in there. You drink, don't you? Oh my God. <laughs> and the guy's scared and he's oh, just kind man. of like, you know, oh. he probably drinks like one sip of motion a, a month. <laughs> right. But he immediately gets labeled uh -huh. alcoholic pancreatitis. We yeah. now know most of those cases are not alcohol. They're 
genetic defects and their um, gallstone-related and other causes. Other things, yeah. Yeah, what we call idiopathic pancreatitis. Right, 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 right. Most of those are genetic defects, but many of them got assigned alcoholic because they have one glass. You know, I'll have one well, glass of wine occasionally. Uh-huh, yeah, sure you do, But Marty, you, Marty, you know you never trust the patient's own alcohol history. You always quintuple it. That's so right. if they had one <laughs> sip, that's six sips. That's enough to give a- alcoholic pancreatitis. That's, right. and that's literally what we say. I love it. If you look back on these shorthand rules that we had, right. like always triple yeah. whatever they say they drink. They drink. I mean, it's such a bad... It's just, it's just out of... It's, it's a bunch of old guys sitting around a table. You know what? Just triple it. <laughs> And, and uh, you know, g- although I have to say the house of God rules that uh, Shem put in his book were things like gomers go to ground, meaning anytime you have a patient who's debilitated, they will fall. Like they will go to the lowest energy state. And so you have to take precautions for that. Or um, specialists always die of their specialty, which I think is absolutely true. Oncologists I've get cancer, that. cardiologists have heart disease. Um, psychiatrists go nuts. Like it's the whole thing. Radiologists can sometimes get radiation induced tumors. That's right. Yeah. Radiologists go blind because they're in the dark all day. I mean, they, I, I don't know. That's never happened. But, you know, uh, <laughs> it, it it's, it's remarkable how savvy he was just mm. being, going through residency and writing everything down, like mm. actually being observant, heaven forbid, instead of just taking the dogma. Yeah. Yeah. Gomers go to ground. You, you would, he would raise the bed to ortho height if you wanted to transfer to ortho because they would fall and break their hip. <laughs> if you wanted to transfer to neurosurgery, you raise it to neuro height. Yeah, and this was terrible, but it, it shone a light on the dehumanization mm-hmm. that was they felt was necessary mm-hmm. to get through that kind of thing. Mm. It's not necessary. And you know, we see that paternalism even in modern day policy. Like, oh sure. Um, early in the pandemic, um, uh, a, a guy who, um, uh, Shantanu Nandi is a physician, works at I know family. Him. You know him? Yeah. Yeah. And he's written a nice book about mm-hmm. care after COVID and other things. So Shantanu and I had talked a lot early in COVID about home testing, home COVID tests. Mm-hmm. And we put it out there in the Washington Post and we try to talk about the importance of getting home testing quickly. And this, the medical establishment pushed back. No, it needs to be done in a hospital. We have to give them the results. We have to go over. That's right. And it was this bias. Reporting. This, and, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, we have to have a medical record number. It's a paternalistic bias. Paternalistic. Yeah. We saw that with home pregnancy tests mm-hmm. when the medical establishment was adamantly opposed mm-hmm. to women learning on their own that they're pregnant, mm-hmm. right? We have to tell them HIV testing. We still have that paternalism yeah. where- we cannot let someone find out they have HIE. We have to test them and then give them the information. That's right. And over-the-counter medicines too. There's often a, a delay. It's like, well, you know, you can't really trust someone with an aspirin, which yeah, is probably true. Can't <laughs> trust them with Paxlovid. We but, have to over-prescribe the low-value care to people who are asymptomatic. Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, man. Dude, but I, I got to respect your time. It's uh, it's one. We, you had a, you might have had you, an brother. Out there. Man. Dude, all I know, I'm going to tonight, I'm going to, I'm going to get hammered. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a cowboy hat. I'm going to put these in holes in the side of the cowboy hat and put straws in both and into my mouth. And I'm just going <laughs> to between Pinot Noir and Cabernet. It's going to be my own blend, a meritage, nice. if you will, if you're nasty. Marty, it is such a joy. My and happy anniversary. I think your anniversary is sometime around now. Can I tell you something? Uh, Wedding anniversary. Wedding my my nineteenth wedding anniversary is today, wow, May tenth. Awesome. And here's the best part. 
my mom sent me an email, happy anniversary to you and Margaret and da, 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 da. And I was like, anniversary? <laughs> and I texted my wife and said, you realize today's our anniversary? Question mark. And she said, OMG, I did not. We uh, both forgot, forgot our anniversary. The 19th, next year will be 20. We Hopefully we won't forget. So we're gonna drink your wine tonight. Well, you're in such marital bliss that you don't even need to remember the milestone dates. Huh? <laughs> That's one way to look at it. <laughs> the other is we're each in our own bubble <laughs> just trying to survive. But either way, it's great. <laughs> at least no one was mad at the other one for forgetting, right? Right. That was great. We were equal opportunity negligence. You didn't have to pull the... Of course I remember that. That's right. The Fred yes. Flintstone, Wilma, of course I remember. Yes, as I make a reservation on my phone. That's right, for <laughs> Little Caesars Pizza Pizza. <laughs> Marty, my brother. Great to see you, brother. It's worth getting Omicron to hang out with you. It's well worth it. If, the, if Omicron is the result of our fun time, it will have been well worth it, it will for have me, been, for me. And for me personally. too. For me too. And for all the others, I will, in fact. Um, for everyone have to make their own personal <laughs> judgment about their their individual risk. <laughs> they, they're they're going to, now when they were present us in the hospital, they'll, they'll be like, you know, a uh, 49-year-old COVID idiot. Uh, <laughs> Please evaluate your personal risk. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> past results do not guarantee future uh returns <laughs> that's right um all right man until next time we're out <laughs> oh wait wait one more thing i want to thank jennifer supporter in the supporter tribe who gave me a really ridiculously generous donation via paypal.me forward slash zdogmd and said i'm donating this because of these things that i love about what you do and one of them was Marty McCary. Oh, that's awesome. So this show is brought to you by Jennifer. Jennifer, thank you so much for your support. And we are out. And and one more thing I've got to add, because my nurse just sent this to me. Ooh. People who have been asking how can they donate to our research, the website is healthredesign.org. Healthredesign.org. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So paypalme.zdogmd, so false <laughs> forward slash zdogmd, and healthredesign.org to support Marty's work. And we are out. Peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.